Well, brothers and sisters, every, every January I spend time hanging out with a guy named Augustine of Hippo. And he was a, an early church father, perhaps the most influential church father in the history of the Western church. Some of you will know that he was a bishop in northern Africa. Between uh, He lived around 354 to 430 A.D. And he wrote a, a, a spiritual biography called The Confessions, which is a, a spiritual classic. And he was an entow- a towering intellect. He was an incredibly gifted preacher. He was a wise bishop, and he was a, pro- a prolific writer. If you've met anyone who says they've read all of, of, of Augustine, you've met a liar because they haven't. He has 44 collected volumes in his writings. Now, this wise, incredibly bright Christian theologian, he didn't grow up in a Christian home per se. His mother, Monica, was a believer, but his dad wasn't. And uh, he says a lot of great things about his mom, but he never really talks about his dad at all. There wasn't much of a relationship there. And what we read about is that Augustine pursued this life of sin and debauchery all the way into his 30s. His mother, Monica, prayed earnestly for his conversion. And she asked him to go to Milan to hear a preacher named Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan. He was probably the most famous preacher of the day. And so Augustine, in order just to make his mom happy, uh, goes to church to, to visit with Ambrose. This amazing preacher. And this is what happened. Listen to this. How was this incredible theologian converted to Christ? Was it through a sermon? Was it what was it? How did it happen? This is what Augustine says. Quote. He told me that as Ambrose told me how glad he was that I had come to see him. My heart warmed to him. Not at first as a teacher of the truth, but simply as a man who was kind to me. That man of God received me like a father. Unknown to me, it was you, Lord, who led me to him so that I might be led by him to you. What led Augustine to the Lord wasn't great rhetoric, wasn't a fancy sermon. It was kindness. He received me like a father. We should not be surprised because what do we read in the the book of Romans? That it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In fact, all through the Old Testament scriptures, we find this word that's rendered in our Bibles often in kindness. It's also rendered as steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord. That's his covenant kindness towards his people. And so in the church, we're also called to live lives of kindness towards one another. And that's what we're going to be reflecting on this morning. Uh, As I mentioned last week, in the month of January, we have one-off messages where we look at God's word and asking ourselves, what are some priorities from God's word that we want to fix in our minds and our hearts for this next year? 
And this morning we want to think about what would it look like for us as a church to grow in covenant kindness and in demonstrating kindness, not only to one another, but to those around us in the world. And there's probably no passage that better pictures and illustrates what kindness looks like than in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 260. Now I'm going to read that passage here in a minute, but let me give you some context. 2 Samuel chapter 9. What's going on? Well, you know that the book of 1 and 2 Samuel are really one book. It's one, one book called Samuel. And the first part of the book, 1 Samuel, describes the ministry of Samuel the prophet and the rise and fall of the first king of Israel. A man named who? Saul. That's right. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and he was looked like a king. The people wanted him as the king and he turned out to be a horrible king. And so that's what first Samuel documents, the rise and the fall of Saul. But then a middle in the middle of the book of first Samuel, there's this reference to this king who God's going to choose a king after God's own heart, a king who was a young shepherd boy, the youngest son of a man named Jesse, who was from the tribe of Judah. And this boy, of course, is named David. And so in the middle of the book of Samuel, for the first part, David begins to rise just as Saul begins to fall. So we get to 2 Samuel and it's right after the death of King Saul. So this is around 1010 BC, a thousand years before the coming of Christ. David has just been anointed as the king of Judah. That's 2 Samuel chapter 2. And then he's anointed as the king of Israel in the north, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And then David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Remember that whole thing? He put it on a, on a cart that had some problems. You can talk about Uzzah at lunch, parents. That's 2 Samuel chapter 6. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the most important chapter in, in us, the whole book of Samuel, God makes a covenant with David. And that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 8. David has destroyed his enemies. He's kind of consolidated his power, especially over and against the Philistines. He's consolidated his power in the region. And we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. That brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let's listen to this story. I'm going to read it to you, then I'm going to tell it to you one more time, and then I'm going to draw two implications for us as a church. So what's the story? 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is what Holy Scripture says. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? 
And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. An interesting story. It's a story of kindness. What can we learn about it? Let's draw attention to a few things in the text as we walk through it to fix it in our minds. And then we'll draw out some implications for us together in the life of our church. So first thing, verses one to five, we find, number one, a shocking question, a shocking question. Verses one to five, verse one. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is a shocking question. Put yourself in David's shoes. Remember how King Saul treated David. He tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He, David had to flee into the wilderness to get away from King Saul. Twice he tried to spear David and spear him to the wall. Remember that? And so now that King Saul is dead, the royal house of Saul has fallen. You would think the question would be, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I need to imprison or execute because they're going to be a threat or danger to my reign? 
But that's not what David asks. He says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him? Your Bible may say kindness. It may say steadfast love. It's the same word in Hebrew. God's disposition to do good covenantally towards those who know him. And that's what David wants to do. And he tells us why. He gives us a specific reason why. It's that last phrase. Did you see it? Why does he want to show kindness to the house of Saul? For Jonathan's sake. Jonathan, as you can remember, if you know the story of Saul, was the son of Saul. He was the heir to the throne. He was going to step in after his father reigned. And yet this first Samuel tells us that Jonathan and David became best friends. And in fact, it was Jonathan's kindness towards David that continually saved David's life. Without Jonathan, David would have died. And so what we find throughout the story of David and Jonathan is repeatedly, at least five times that I can find, they made a covenant with each other. Let me, get, let me read it to you. Here's one example of a covenant that they made with one another. You can write this down. 1 Samuel 20, verses 13 to 17. May, this, is, this is Jonathan speaking to David. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That's the word kindness. Show me kindness. Show me the kindness of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love. There it is again. From my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so this is the background of this shocking question. David wants to know, is there anybody left in Saul's house that I can lavish kindness upon because of David, or because of Jonathan, because of the covenant I made with my dear friend, Jonathan. So David asks Ziba, he says, send me Ziba, right? Some great names in this passage. If you're a young parent thinking about names for kids, Jonathan's great. I love Jonathan, but Ziba Mephibosheth, outstanding choices. Verse two, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. He's a squirrely fella. You need to keep your eye on Ziba if you read the rest of this book, but we're not gonna talk about that. We're talking about this. And Ziba, and, and so Ziba came to David and he said, are you Ziba? I am your servant. Verse three, is there not still anyone or someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba says, yes, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. So apparently there's, there's a survivor and he's the son of Jonathan. So he's Saul's grandson. And we're told here that he's crippled. And if you're a careful reader of 2 Samuel, you already knew this. 
Because earlier in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, we're told how this little boy became crippled. This is a sad story. Listen to this. After the death of Jonathan and Saul, we're told this. Jonathan, the son, this is 2 Samuel 4 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And then we're told how he became crippled. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan's death came from Jezreel. And his nurse, or his nanny, picked him up and fled. And as as she fled in her haste, in her hurry, she fell. And in that point, it says he became lame. So he was being whisked away as a five-year-old by his nanny because he found out that his dad and granddad were dead. And he's thinking, we got to run for our lives because David's people are going to come here and get us. She drops Mephibosheth, apparently. And he's so damaged from the fall that he becomes crippled in both feet. He can't walk, apparently. And we're told, and his name was Mephibosheth. Losing your granddad at five is hard. Losing your dad at five is even harder. And on top of all this pain, you are the only surviving descendant of a fallen house, a fallen dynasty. And on top of all of that, you're crippled. There's no wheelchairs. There's no wheelchair ramps. Apparently he couldn't run or walk. He had to be carried wherever he went. If his grandfather Saul had remained king, he would have had the entire, the entire royal benefit. Whatever money could provide would be able to provide for his care. But he doesn't have that anymore. And so you get the sense of his life. It's a hard life. You can get the sense if you read your Bible carefully in the name change that he had. If you read in First Chronicles, which is everyone's favorite book, but in First Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34, we're told that Jonathan's son, his original name was Meribal. Meribal. That was the name he was given when he was born. But apparently after his accident, he got a new name, Mephibosheth. And that name means shame. Every time someone called his name, he was reminded of the shame. He was reminded of the shame of being the grandson of a crazy king. The shame of being the lone survivor of a fallen house. The shame of being a cripple. The shame of having to be carried The shame of not being able to run or to walk. Talk about a great reversal of fortune from a prince in the royal house to a cripple whose name is shame. Verse four, where is he? You notice he's in a house of Makir. So some some patron has kind of adopted him. But you notice that last word? He's at Lodabar. You can even see a sense of shame and disgrace in where he's living. Lodabar means no pasture. So he's, li- he's living in a place called no pasture. That doesn't sound good, right? 
no pasture. And so David says, go get him, go get him. So he sends Ziba to go get Mephibosheth and to bring him down to Jerusalem where David is. Now you can imagine when he finds out that he's having to go to Jerusalem, that's a long journey. It's about 60 miles from Lodabar to Jerusalem. That's a long journey for a cripple. But then also, I wonder what Mephibosheth is thinking. Is he thinking David's been settling, you know, accounts in the region? Am I going to my execution? I don't know. That brings us to a lavish promise, a lavish promise. Verses six to eight. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. I assume that he was brought into David's presence perhaps carried and he fell on his face and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Now we're not told exactly, but I do believe that there was some manifestation of fear on Mephibosheth's countenance. I don't know if he was trembling. I don't know if his voice was shaking. I don't know if the awkward falling down in front of the king. I don't know what it was. Something demonstrated that he was afraid for his life. How do I know that? Well, look at verse seven. (laughs) Don't fear. (laughs) Don't be afraid, David says. And then he gives the reason why. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. Here's why. For I will show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall always eat at my table. He gives this glorious threefold promise and says, don't be afraid because this is what I'm promising to do for you. I will show you kindness. That means I'm going to I'm going to give you all of Saul's land. And you're going to eat at my table, the table of the king, forever. This is a lavish promise, isn't it? This is like Charles Dickens' rags to riches, right? The the, the poor little boy, you know, he, he goes from being a prince to being an outcast. And now he's invited back into the royal house. He gives Mephibosheth royal property and he gives him the royal privilege And he invites this crippled orphan a seat at the king's table. It's amazing. And I love love Mephibosheth's uh, response in verse 8 is classic. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Right? I think personally dead cat would have worked better, but whatever. He's, He's shocked. You're showing... This kind of kindness to a worthless person? Like, I mean, that's what he's saying. A dead dog? You're treating me like this? He's amazed. And we get to the third part of the passage, which is, it's really a happy ending. Verses 9 to 13. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson shall have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. 
We're told Ziba has plenty of folks to do that work. And so that's what they're going to do. Verses, verses 11, he says, I'm going to do it. Everything you've said, David, I'm going to do it. And this is amazing. He gets Saul's property, right? Three miles north of Jerusalem in Gibeah. All of his property goes to Mephibosheth. He goes from no pasture to bunch of pasture, right? He goes to Jerusalem and all of a sudden he's got this massive inheritance. And all of the sons and servants of Ziba are going to work on his behalf and for the benefit of his household. But he gets the privilege of eating at the king's table forever. You all know that table fellowship in, in the Bible is an important and weighty thing. And imagine being given access not only to the household of the king and the presence of the king, but to sit at the king's table permanently. What a privilege. And we're told in verse 11 why David emphasized this so much in regards to Mephibosheth. Remember, he's an orphan. But what is David? What are we told about David's actions? So, verse 11b. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. This is my favorite phrase in the whole passage. Like one of the king's sons. David is not treating him like a servant. He's not treating him like a, a guest. He's treating Mephibosheth, the one who was the son of shame, as his own son. It's like that hymn that we sing. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. So, brothers and sisters, this is, there's so much in this passage that we could think about. But what are some implications for us individually and, and as a church? As we consider God's kindness, the kind you saw it three times, kindness, kindness, the kindness of God. Well, God, number one, calls us to kindness. Let's consider just briefly God's call to kindness. Kindness gets a bad rap these days. If you were to gauge social media, which is always a terrible thing to gauge, whether or not that's a reality, most, most people, and I would say even maybe the majority of Christians, seem to think quarreling is better than kindness. And kindness is often in our days equated with weakness. If you're kind to someone, you're really showing weakness. You need to, you need to uh, argue a little more vociferously. Well, in our passage, we see David, the one who was representing the people of God under the old covenant, under the Davidic covenant, demonstrating lavish kindness. And that kindness, that same kind of kindness ought to be marked in the lives of followers of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read earlier in our passage from Colossians chapter three, that God commands us to be a people as a church that shows kindness to one another. This happens in our conversion. When God saves us, he gives us his Holy Spirit who begins to produce fruit in our lives. And one of the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So 
increasingly, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is to be increasingly marked by kindness. In the body of Christ, we're to treat one another with kindness. In our church covenant, which is really just a bunch of the one another commands from the New Testament, this is what we promise. This is what we covenant together with each other. We say we will be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. You may have a sappy, feelings-oriented, hallmark idea of what kindness looks like. You may think of kindness as just being nice or being courteous or maybe being Southern. I don't know. But there's nothing and there's nothing wrong about being nice and about being courteous or being Southern. There's nothing, maybe, but there's nothing wrong with those things. But I want you to notice how in this passage, kindness isn't connected to feelings necessarily. It's demonstrated by actions. David doesn't just have warm, fuzzy feelings about Mephibosheth. David takes action. He asks, he seeks, he orders, he promises, he provides, he invites, he supplies, he protects. So as we think about demonstrating kindness towards one another, especially in the local church, it's going to require heartfelt action. It needs to take expression in the concrete. Tender-hearted kindness reveals itself in many ways, including what we say in our church covenant, forgiving one another. One of the ways you demonstrate kindness is by showing, by, by offering and receiving forgiveness. That's a tangible, practical way that Colossians 3, 12 and following connects kindness with forgiveness. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. So one of the ways you can show kindness is by bearing with others in this church. Just put up with them, right? That's a way you can show kindness. We're called to demonstrate kindness. I see kindness in this church and my prayer and encouragement is excel still more. Excel still more in 2022. What a witness it would be to others when they visit to walk away thinking this is a congregation of baptized believers who are kind. Elders, you're commanded to show kindness to everyone. Did you know that? 2 Timothy 2.23 says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So if you're an elder or you're aspiring to be an elder, we have a list of people we're supposed to be kind to. Everyone. Now, as I meditated on 2 Samuel 9, the one thing I want to point out as we close, when we think about practical implications of God's kindness, it's simply this. Did you notice in our passage 
that the expression, the concrete action that God's kindness took in David's relationship with Meshibetheth is this. Namely, he kept his word. He kept his word. He made a covenant with Jonathan. And even after Jonathan was dead and gone, even though those covenants that he took were in private and no one knew about them, he gave his word. And when it came time, he did it. You want to know how kindness demonstrates itself in our lives, in our marriages? Keep your word. Psalm 15, 4, David says, this is what a righteous person, this is how a righteous person lives, an upright person. They swear to their own hurt and they don't change. Do you keep your word? When you say something, when you promise something, do you do what you said you do? Around the office, at school, on your sports teams, to your kids, to your spouse, to your roommate. Do you keep your word? And the reason, brothers and sisters, that this displays the kindness of God is that God always keeps his word. He's never spoken an idle word. In many ways, the Christian life consists of covenant obligations. And every single day, we're called to keep our vows, to keep our words. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. I officiated a a wonderful wedding in Ohio. You can talk to that lovely couple afterwards. But I was reminded as I was helping this beautiful couple walk through their marriage vows, it just landed on me that what a marriage vow is, is a commitment to lifelong kindness by keeping our vows, by keeping our word. Listen to this story. I'm always encouraged by stories. B.B. Warfield, one of the greatest theologians this country has ever produced. He, uh, he went to Germany in 1876 with his, with his uh, wife, his new wife, Annie. They had just gotten married. They went there for a honeymoon. They were on a walking tour in the mountains and caught in a terrible thunderstorm on their honeymoon. And she was struck by lightning. And Annie never fully recovered. She was an invalid the rest of her life. And so Warfield, he only left her side for his seminary duties at Princeton and never more than two hours at a time. His whole world was limited to Princeton Seminary and caring for Annie. And this is what he did for 39 years from honeymoon until she passed away. One of his students saw the Warfields walking on campus. And this is what the student wrote in his journal. Quote, the kindness and gentleness of Dr. Warfield's manner toward his bride was a striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. Isn't that beautiful? Brothers and sisters, this is just an echo 
of the covenant kindness that Jesus Christ has displayed to every single one of us in the gospel. He has demonstrated lavish kindness towards us. And so if you want a practical implication of this passage this week, by God's grace and for his glory, give yourself, give yourself to lavish, unwearied kindness this next week. If the Lord gives you breath. I love the way uh, J.C. Ryle put it. He put it like this. Let us show kindness to everyone with whom we have something to do. Let us strive to be an eye ready to see and a hand ready to help and a heart ready to feel and a will ready to do good. Let us weep with those who weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. This is one way to recommend our faith and to make it beautiful before the world. Then he put it this way. Kindness is a grace that all can understand. This is one way to be like our blessed Savior. If there was anything notable in his ministry, it is his unwearied kindness. So brothers and sisters, the passage is calling us to kindness. It's calling us this week to consider prayerfully how we can show kindness to one another in the body of Christ, kindness to those around us in our workplace, in our schools, in our families. And as we close, the other thing that this passage does, it calls us to consider God's kind king, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I read this passage, I was convicted um, by times that I don't keep my word, by the times I've been unkind with family and friends. And what we find in this passage is that this passage shows David at his best, doesn't it? But the rest of the book of Samuel can show David at his worst. And anytime we see David, the king of Israel, at his best, what we really see is an echo of a son of David, David's son and David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's the true king from the line of Judah. David is not the ultimate focus of Scripture. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And everything in this passage, it really gives us an echo, a picture of God's lavish kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So I want you to just think about this for a minute. Just imagine what we see that points to, points to Christ in this passage. You see, you see David summoning this enemy from the far country to come home, treats him with kindness, shows concern for him and makes an abundant provision for his needs and then grants him table fellowship forever. Isn't that amazing? We see in this passage the way God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, when we were his enemies, he loved us. And he sent his son to die in our place for our sins, to reconcile us with the father and not only to reconcile us, 
But then he brings us into his household. He brings us into his family. And our names are no longer shame. They are son and they are daughter. And then every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that we sit at the table of the king. And that he promises there's a day coming when we will gather with all of God's people around the throne at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will enjoy unending fellowship and access to the King of Kings. When we were his enemies, the King of Kings came and showed kindness. And as we heard a few weeks ago, in Ephesians 2, he not only showed us kindness in this life, but according to Ephesians 2, 7, he shows us kindness now so that in the coming ages, he may lavish his unsearchable kindness on us forever. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, more than anything in the world, we want to introduce you to the kind Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died and rose again for our justification. He offers not only kindness, he offers you what is more, himself. And the way you receive him is by receiving him, not by works, not by trying hard, but in the empty hands of faith, by turning from your sins and casting yourself on his mercy. There will never be a day when you follow Jesus Christ that won't be hard, but there will never be a day that you can look at following Christ and say he is not a kind king. Followers of Christ, members of this local church, our king lavishes his kindness on us. He doesn't treat us as rebels. He treats us like royalty. He treats us as princes and princesses as sons and daughters. This is what he has done for us. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. And because of his kindness, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens in 2022, we know from God's word and we know from the bottom of our hearts that surely goodness and mercy and kindness will follow us all the days of our lives. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for your lavish kindness. Well, we thank you that when the goodness and kindness of God, our savior appeared, you saved us. Lord, we pray that we would today and in the days to come reflect more deeply on all that you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that in light of your kindness, you would make us zealous for good works, 
a people who are transformed by grace to serve a dying world, an unkind world, a world that is filled with enemies of God. And Lord, we pray that through our ministry, that you would transform enemies into sons and daughters of the King. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.